buscado un mejor destino para ti, lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast for July 20th, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. And we are the creative team behind the upcoming documentary film, Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. Our film is about my life as one of El Salvador's disappeared children and my personal journey to make sense of what happened to my family and me. To learn more about the film and sign up for updates, head on over to inbarfilm.com. That's I-N-B-A-R film.com. Inside the Journey is a weekly podcast that John and I do together. We discuss issues relating to the film and interview people who help us better understand what happened in El Salvador. This week, our guest is Congressman Jim McGovern of Massachusetts 2nd District. This is an interview we've wanted to do for some time, and we are very excited to be sharing it with you. In the 1980s, McGovern worked for Congressman Joe Moakley, and the two of them played a key role in stopping U.S. foreign aid to El Salvador, which helped bring an end to the war. In part one of our interview, Congressman McGovern talks about his experiences in El Salvador and the work he did on the Moakley Report. Today we have with us a special guest. We have Representative Jim McGovern of uh, Massachusetts 2nd Congressional District. Thanks so much for being with, with us here today, Representative McGovern. Happy to be with you. Representative McGovern was very involved and has been very involved with uh, El Salvadoran affairs since the 1980s and was also very involved with the Moakley Report, which helped bring to close U.S. participation in the war in the early 90s. So we wanted to spend our first segment of the podcast speaking today with Representative McGovern about his experiences, how he became involved with El Salvador, how he came to know some of the Jesuit priests who were killed in 1989 in this massacre, and then his involvement in the Moakley Report. Representative McGovern, we first wanted to ask you how you became involved with Salvadoran issues. Well, I always cared about human rights, and uh, when I was in college, I, I you know, I, I became aware of the situation in El Salvador that was uh, in the late 70s and uh, into 1980. And uh, then I went to work for a congressman from South Boston, a guy named Joe Moakley. Um, and uh, he asked me if I would, among the many responsibilities I had, would you take care of my foreign affairs issues? And I, and, uh, I said I would. And he, uh, he had the habit of holding office hours um, in various places, sometimes in coffee shops, sometimes in post offices. And he uh, held an office hour uh, in the early 80s in, a, in the Jamaica Plain, which is a kind of a part of Boston uh, post office. And uh, the people that he was meeting with were part of the Jamaica Plain Committee on Central America, a group of activists who cared very deeply about uh, the terrible things that were happening in El Salvador and did not believe we should be sending U.S. military aid to the, the armed forces down there. And uh, Moakley didn't really know much about it. Uh, so he called me up and said, hey, I'm meeting with a group of activists uh, on El Salvador. Um, you know, they're telling me things are really terrible, and they're telling me that uh, that we're deporting refugees back to El Salvador, and it's unsafe. So uh, you know, what do you know about it? And I said, well, I, all I know is what I've read and, and briefings and, and uh, you know, uh, and events that I've attended. Uh, he said, well, why don't you go down there? So I went to El Salvador for a couple of weeks uh, and kind of hooked up with various organizations that were already doing trips to try to get a, a basic understanding of what was going on. And it became very clear to me, and this was in the early 80s, probably around 1983, 
uh, that um, that things were pretty bad, um, and it uh, and I, I felt the tension. I mean, you could it just when you once you walked off of that airplane, I'll never forget it. You you felt that this was an oppressive place, and uh, and I met with students and teachers and you know uh, union activists and you know. Uh, People just were trying to raise their families who told me their stories, and uh, some of them were just horrific beyond uh, description. And during that trip, I, I was told that if you really want to get a sense for what the reality is here, you ought to talk to the Jesuits at the University of Central America, the UCA. And so I met with uh, Father Ignacio A. Correa, and I met with uh, Father Segundo Montes, who was a, kind of an expert on, on refugee issues and met with the father, uh, Martin Barreau. So I get to know these three men for my very first trip. And, um, and, I, and, they, and they taught me a lot uh, about the realities. And uh, I remember Father Martin Barreau said to me when I left, uh, he said, one last thing, don't ever forget that we're human beings too. And I just remember that for some reason because it was so powerful at the time and uh, it, it made such an impression on me. But that was my, my, my first trip. I came back and I said to Congressman Moakley that things are bad, you know, that uh, we shouldn't be supporting military aid and we need to do something about the refugees. And that began an effort that lasted until 1989, uh, an effort that Joe Moakley launched in the House. He had Senator Dennis DeConcini of Arizona did in the Senate, uh, an attempt to stop the deportations of Salvadoran refugees. Um, and we were successful in 1989. Uh, with he was the author of the uh, temporary uh, 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 TPS temporary protected status, which was afforded to Salvadorans belatedly, uh, but he fought for that very passionately because of what I told him and because of uh, of the people that came up to Washington and we would have them come in and sit in his office, including some of the Jesuit priests. Uh, so that's how that's how I got involved. It, it's interesting to me that you mentioned the tension in El Salvador uh, when we were there in 2011 filming we felt that as well I don't think it was probably quite as dangerous as it was uh, when you were visiting but you felt uh, you know that there was this great tension and, and John and I have commented several times on this uh, podcast about how we would see armed guards with shotguns you know the, the size of your arm and how um, off-putting it was you know it, it, it's quite a culture shock well, um, I, I, I traveled there several times during the 1980s, uh, and um, and I think this it's the first country I ever visited where I saw a dead body on the side of the road. Um, there were people that I met with um, on one trip who I found out several months later were murdered. Um, I went down there at one time to help accompany a, 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 a union activist who had been tortured, um, and um, I, she showed me the torture. Uh, marks on his body, and um, you know, I talked. I talked to dozens and dozens of mothers of the disappeared whose kids were taken from them, and and so when I would talk to people, um, I would always be worried that you know, that, you know, that something might, some harm might come to them for mm -hmm. just having a meeting with me, uh, especially the human rights defenders, you know, who would constantly raise the issues of human rights abuses, and you know, live under constant threat. The Political activists and and again the Jesuits at the university these these were these were teachers and, and administrators of this university you know and they would you know routinely call for an end to the violence and they would get death threats 
And don't forget, there was a time in El Salvador when there was when the right wing had a had a uh, slogan: "Be a patriot and kill a priest." I mean, um, you know, when I went to El Salvador, uh, the my first visit this was it was after the murder of Archbishop Bosco Romero. It was after the murder of the four American church women, um, and um, you know, and uh, and so I, you know. I kind of walk, I, I visited the country kind of in the shortly after all that, and um, and also at the 1980s, I, I just I always worried, not so much about my safety, um, but about the people that I talk with, and um, because they constantly got threats. I remember one time I was supposed to meet I think Father uh, a Korea um, at a coffee shop, and he called uh, to ask if I could meet him on campus because he had just received a threat that. You know, seemed a little bit more uh, intense than previous threats, and thought it would be better for both of us if we met, met on campus. It was a safer place. So, you know, I, I felt the tension, and the peop and people, you know, the, and the people I met with, you know, you know, I I, I get to leave. <laughs> you know, I was I'd be there for a week or two at a time, and then I would leave. But the people that I met with, who I got to know, who became friends, I mean, they stayed. That's what they had to live with every single day of their lives. Yeah. Nelson was actually born while his mother was in hiding um, in San Salvador in Zacamil. So yeah, one of the reasons why I became so passionate about this whole effort to stop the deportation of Salvadoran refugees during that time was because I I saw firsthand the violence. Uh, I saw firsthand, you know, the the, t the targeting of people who dared to question authority, uh, and um, you know, and and just uh, you know, and and, and students. You know who um, you know were you know were activists on campus. All of a sudden, got labeled as being enemies of the state. The Jesuit priests were, were enemies of the state. You know the uh, you know the government labeled them that way. I mean, the, you know, teachers, uh, trade unionists, you know, people demanding a, a decent wage. You know, and I and I I always was what always kind of bothered me as an American during that time was that um, I think if, if we if we had been if I if I had been born and grown up in El Salvador during that period of time, um, I believe I would have been on the, on the side of the opposition. I, as, as somebody who cares about freedom, who cares about human rights, and that's what this that's what the United States is supposed to stand for. The notion that um, that anybody would tolerate the system that existed back then just seemed you know so foreign to me, and I and I. And it bothered me greatly that you know uh, the, some of the meetings that I, I felt most ashamed of were the meetings I had with the U.S. Embassy when we had people who just defended the status quo down there, who wouldn't even acknowledge that there were death squad killings, who who you know who, who didn't believe that people were being killed, uh, you know, who were unarmed, uh, you know, dissidents. I mean, they just you know they 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 every everybody was killed was uh, you know was an armed combatant everybody you know there was no death squad killings this was this was a country where human rights was being respected and the government was doing its best to respect human rights when when quite frankly you know you didn't have to be a phd in uh, foreign policy to realize that the system was oppressive that uh, that the military you know um, had more control than they any than, than they should have in a country that supposedly had a civilian government, and uh, that you know there were people that were targeted simply because they dissented, and um, and I, I I always thought that you know the U.S. was was wrong to kind of take sides in that in that conflict. The people that I met with who were part of the FMLN, look, you had some people who I guess who I met with who were kind of hardline true 
believers in Marxism. But the, most of the people I met with, um, you know, over the years who who were, who were in the opposition were people who, you know, who, whose you know, daughter had been murdered and raped, or you know, their, their their husband had been you know murdered, or their children had been disappeared, or uh, you know, or I mean, something horrible that that happened in their lives that uh, where there was no justice, and they felt that you know there was no other alternative. So. I think the U.S. policy during that time, propping up a, a, a rotten military, um, you know, is, is, is something that, uh, quite frankly, we should not be proud of. In fact, we should, you know, learn from that and try never to repeat that again. It's really interesting because you're sort of touching on a dynamic that I uh, talk about in the film where I interview my uncle who was uh, tortured and uh, took care of me as a little boy and I sort of flat out ask him you know I'm I essentially grew up as an American and our government is partially responsible for this and how do I reconcile what has happened to you with the, the country that I'm now a part of you know and he had a pretty amazing answer Answer, which was simply, uh, our you know our fight was against the imperialist mentality and not with the people of, of the U.S. There are brothers and sisters, and I thought it was just such a um, remarkable statement from a man who had been through so much and lost so much. Right. And uh, well, it I, does. I, yeah. you, know, and, you know, and that and that's consistent with, with what I learned. I, I remember I went back to El Salvador for the 25th anniversary of the commemorating the murders of the four American churchwomen. And everywhere we went, every little village we went to, um, you know, there were masses and, and gatherings. They were always packed with people. And I remember asking one woman afterwards, I said, you know, um, uh, you know, who we get up and spoke about how wonderful the Americans are. Uh, and I, I, I said, I, how could you say that when you live through so much and so much of the hardship you lived through, you know, was as a result of us propping up a military that, that, you know, was awful. And she said, when I think of the American people, I don't think of that. I think of these four churchwomen who came down here and worked with the poor and cared about us and ultimately gave their lives for us. When we think of America, we think of those people. And, you know, and I was like, well, you know, I kind of felt a sense of a little bit of relief that, boy, okay, I'm glad you think of us that way. But for me, you know, um, now, as a U.S. citizen, as a member of Congress, I, I mean, I, it bothers me greatly. It, it, it depresses me terribly when we act in a way uh, where we put human rights on the sidelines and where we tolerate, you know, um, awful things. And so many awful things were tolerated in El Salvador. I mean, it was. I mean, the. The, 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 I mean, people were not just shot; they were tortured, and they—I mean, it was the, the brutality and the and and the horror. And uh, I mean, you know, again, meeting with people secretly and you know, always speaking in a whisper. Um, you know, um, it, it it was a very very oppressive place. Uh, and um, and again, as I said before, it's one of the reasons why I felt very strongly that we shouldn't at that time. Why? This bill that Joe Mokley had introduced to stop the deportation of Salvadoran refugees—that's why I thought it was so important to get that passed, because you know what, I knew very well that a lot of the people that came here, if they were deported back, would be killed, mm -hmm. um, and I thought, you know, 
that's something the United States ought to care about. You know, we, if we stand for anything, we should stand out loud and four square for human rights. In El Salvador, we didn't. Uh, in El Salvador, we got caught up in this kind of wacky, you know, conspiracy theory that the communists were going to invade Texas. You know, that this was that that, that this, this revolution that was going on was all about you know a lust for Marxism, when in fact what it was was people who just were so isolated, uh, you know, from the system, who were who were oppressed by the system, who wanted what most Americans want. I mean, a an opportunity to live freely, an opportunity to you know be able to have a job that pays a decent wage and, you know, and, and not have to worry about if you send your kids to school that they might not come back. And um, so I, um, you know, I, I you know, the, the, those experiences for me, um, you know, uh, you know, still uh, resonate when I, when I think about how the United States should act in certain parts of the world. And so, um, so I, you know, I, 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 in my office, I have you know pictures of Archbishop Romero and you know uh, you know pictures of friends of mine who who were who I knew who were helpful in El Salvador. I mean, I I feel very close and very strongly about that country. You know, there's an um, interesting quote from The Fog of War, uh, the documentary film, in which Robert McNamara says, "You need to know the under." the other side well enough to empathize with them or you risk totally misunderstanding them and you know I, I feel like that kind of sums up a lot of the way that we've approached wars over the past you know 40 years that we have failed to empathize and and that's exactly what you're talking about yeah. going to El Salvador meeting with them and and not taking what's being portrayed in the media at face value but making right. your own opinion and you know Robert McNamara, uh, you know, was supposedly one of the best and the brightest, uh, you know, uh, when he went into the Kennedy administration, and he never asked that question about, uh, you know, what the other side felt. Uh, and as a result, we went into one of the worst blunders in our history, which was Vietnam. I think the same thing is true in El Salvador. I mean, I, I, I you know, I mean, this notion that somehow the, 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 the guerrillas in El Salvador were, you know, were were fighting, you know, the government because of you know, because of something that Moscow or Havana had, you know, passed on, like you could export revolution, like you export a bale of cotton. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, the people that I met with who were in the opposition, some of them in the armed opposition, were doing so because yeah, it had nothing to do with ideology, uh, had everything to do with the fact that they wanted a government that respected human rights, that respected the poor, um, that, you know, that, um, you know, that, Dealt with the issues of impunity, you know, and corruption, and um, I mean, I again, I think you know, when you read about the history of the United States, I mean, the, the founders of our country, I mean, I mean, what motivated them were some of the same things that motivated a lot of the people who uh, you know who joined the opposition in El Salvador during that time. Yeah, I wanted to try and move to your involvement with the Mowgli Report, which was. To listeners that may not be as aware, it was an investigative report that led to eventually the U.S. defunding of um, of the Salvadoran military, and and that was something that you made a great contribution to, and went down there right soon after the murder of of six of the Jesuits and two right. of their housekeepers. And I just wanted to ask you about that. And one of the Jesuits who actually wasn't there that day was 
Father John Cortina, who started ProBusquet, the organization that has found over 300 of the disappeared children, including Nelson. Right. Um, and he, he actually heard his name listed on the radio that day as among the dead because yeah. it had sort of been, you know, they had the list of the priests that were there and put out a press release who they had killed. Um, and he heard his name in the radio on, on in his car on the way back to the Capitol, I believe. And he turned around and, and went back to his congregation in uh, in Wahila, and they, they helped hide him and protect him. But in, anyway, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Mokley report, and I mean, the war didn't just end. No, it didn't. No, people it didn't. helped make it end, and there was a lot of right. resistance, and a lot of people were threatened along the way. Some people you interviewed, and wanted to ask you about some of your experiences with it. Well, in 1989, we 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 finally succeeded in passing a bill to stop the deportation of Salvadoran refugees. That was called temporary protective status, and I think for Joe Mokley, he thought that was the end of his involvement in El Salvador. He had done what he promised that he would do, and he was proud of the fact that he helped protect some people. And then, um, you know, uh, one a night in November 1989, I remember getting a call like about 3 or 4 in the morning uh, from a friend of mine who said uh, they killed them. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And she, she says, they're all dead. I said, what are you talking about? The priest. And that's all she had to say. Uh, and I knew that it that it, it was the Jesuits uh, at the university, and she went down the list. And as, as I mentioned before, there were three of them: Father Acuria, Father Martin Barro, and Father Segundo Montes, who I knew personally. And um, and I and I was and, and I was stunned, and um, because this was 1989, and at that time the Bush administration was saying that you know the human rights situation is all taken care of. The the the, the FMLN had been reduced to banditry. They have no they have no influence, no power. Everything's beautiful. You know, it's all all good from now on. And here you had six holy men, and they're you know, and they're two, and two women, their housekeeper and her daughter, who were murdered uh, execution style on that campus. Um, and so that, that time, then Speaker Tom Foley, um, at the request of Congressman Gary Studs from Massachusetts, said we should form a task force to investigate the murders, and they asked Mokley to head it up. And because um, Mokley was the kind of guy that, uh, you know, di didn't have kind of, I mean, he just kind of was a, a bread and butter, nuts and bolts politician, not a, a, you know, not someone who's viewed as an ideologue or anything like that. And um, and so Mokley agreed to do it. And um, Congressman Studs aide Bill Woodward, uh, you know, worked closely with me. And, uh, and we spent um, a lot of time um, down in El Salvador uh, investigating those murders. And Here's the deal. Um, neither Bill nor I could speak Spanish. I mean, I can order stuff at a restaurant and <laughs> find out where the bathroom is, or you know, emergencies. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fluent in, in, in Spanish. None of us had an investigative background. We never went to any police training, or you know, we had no idea how to do an investigation. Um, and we hooked up with this fellow named Leonel Gomez, who became a really good friend of ours, who was well connected down there, and it was kind of our eyes and ears. And we just began to interview people. Um, and you know, you know, and after months and months and months of uh, interviews in which we which we released re interim reports along the way to, to kind of pressure, you know, the government down there to do the right thing. And Mokley came when he came on a number of occasions. In fact, on one occasion, he gave a very harsh speech at the university where he said that the uh, military of El Salvador has a, there's an institutional problem. This is not a the result of a, of a few bad apples. This is an institutional 
problem where the institution thinks it's okay to kill priests and get away with it and then to cover it up. And, um, and you know, what we found was that the high command of the Salvadoran Armed Forces was involved uh, in giving the order. These are people who we funded. Um, 24 of the 26 triggermen who went onto the campus and murdered these priests and these two women were graduates of the School of the Americas in, in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, and um, they had U.S. manufactured guns uh, they used. Um, but they did this, um, you know, and after they murdered the priest, they hung around a little bit uh, before they left the site because they knew that they were protected. And um, and so we, uh, we, we the Mokley report basically made clear who was responsible for the for the shootings and who was responsible for the orders. The intellectual authors of this crime were every bit as responsible, if not more so, than the people who did the shooting. And um, and we introduced he introduced an amendment that basically you know um, uh, for the first for the first time ever actually. Uh, Withheld military assistance to El Salvador pending, you know, advances on uh, the investigation and on the peace negotiations. And what ended up happening was, I think that that was the indication to the Salvadoran Armed Forces that the party was over. You know, that the blank check from the U.S. Congress was coming to an end, um, and that helped mightily, I think, in getting a peace settlement uh, uh, at the negotiating table. And um, it was a far. It was far from a perfect peace. I, I thought it was a mistake that, you know, there was an amnesty that was uh, granted uh, before the uh, negotiations. I thought. Um, I think. I, I think. I think it was important for the people of El Salvador to know who was responsible for so many atrocities, that there ought to be an accounting, that there ought to be an admission at, at a very minimum. And quite frankly, some of the crimes that were committed were so horrific. Some of the massacres that I thought. Some of these guys ought to go to jail, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know that part did not happen. But the, they did sign a peace agreement, um, and um, you know, and uh, you know, and, and and here we are today. And that's where we're going to end it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next time to hear the conclusion of our interview with Congressman Jim McGovern. Mm-hmm.